Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What You're Reading. Today's episode will go alongside the blog post for December 23rd. As always, in that post, I will link to all the books, the quotes, and anything else that I mention. You can find that entry on tbqsbookpalace.com. While you're at it, feel free to find me on social media as well. For Twitter, that is the underscore book underscore queen. I'm listed under the same name for my Goodreads. Instagram is Danielle underscore TBQ. And if Tumblr is your thing, you've got two options. My safe for work Tumblr is the dash book dash queen dot Tumblr dot com. While my completely not safe for work, no, seriously, I warned you, this is just porn here. Tumblr is TBQ after dark dot Tumblr dot com. Pick your social media poison and come join the fun. This entire episode is apparently brought to you by the words fuck that shit. You know, I keep saying that I'm going to improve on the audio quality, and I swear one day I will, but you have to realize that I'm working with what I have here, both in terms of recording, which is all on my phone, like I've mentioned before, and as far as what the hell I know how to do with editing, which is literally nothing. Um, but every week, I swear I figure out how to fix one thing, and then I go to try and do that again the next week, and then I end up just fucking up the entire audio. And it's just this endless cycle that I've yet to figure out how to break or improve. So I swear, one of these weeks, the audio quality will actually be good. This is not one of those weeks. It is kind of uneven again and all messed up. And sometimes you may have a hard time hearing me. And other times you may have random sounds going in the background that I couldn't edit out. Because, yeah, life happens. Like, my phone goes off during one part. Pretty sure the dog's barking in another. There's a garbage truck that shows up at another point. You guys, I am super professional over here. Super professional. But hey, you came here to hear me talk about books, not um, to hear me talk about how I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So let's move on. So just in time for Christmas, we finally got some snow, which means that we finally got ice, which meant that my walk yesterday ended with a nice little slip on the ice and a fall on my ass. You know, I love my fat. I accept my fat. I am one with my fat. But my fat does not love me back because otherwise it should be cushioning my ass when I fall. But it's a selfish bitch and it won't do that, so we're kind of not on speaking terms for a moment. It's not much to ask of fat, right? Have my back, or rather my backside. And to add insult to injury, when I did slide, uh, it was on leg day, so, you know, I've already got my ass and my thighs that are burning from workout, and then I go and do this, so that was all sorts of fun. It's okay. I'm being a little bit dramatic. I'm fine. I just, this is the thing I hate about winter. Not so much the snow and the cold, although that's not my favorite part, but the ice is the actual devil. So I hope you have a lovely Christmas, or at the very least, a lovely holiday weekend. Uh, what are some of your plans, including food? What do you make for Christmas? Whether that's sweet things or savory things, I don't care, let me know. Speaking of food, the Christmas crack that I keep talking about, I will leave a link to the recipe again. Uh, that was made and promptly disappeared. I don't know where. <coughs> My belly. <coughs> and another batch was made, and hey, there's still some of that batch left, but uh, not much. No comment. No comment. I do have some plans to make some more cookies uh, probably this weekend, but we'll just have to see what I have time for. I want to do another batch of peanut butter blossoms, but I got some mini Reese's cups to put in the top. Um, thank you for that idea, Jen. I am looking forward to that. But I also want to make a like a mint chocolate chip cookie. I think that's what I kind of want to do. That's what I have in mind. Um, not just to enjoy and eat myself, but I have plans to put it in a gift for a friend because chocolate and mint is totally her jam. So um, we'll see if I can get through with that this weekend, along with like a million other things that I need to do. And yeah, I better shut up and get on with this so that I can get to the million other things that I need to do. Let's start everything out with some Romance Landia chats, shall we? There were some really great conversations going on this week, and I will link to all of them in the blog post, just like I always do. 
So first off, I know you're tired of me talking about misogyny and romance, and I won't add more to this right now, um, but it was a conversation on romance Twitter this week, more than once. First, Brie, who is half of the writing duo behind Kit Rocha, uh, she was talking about what it's like to write romance, especially MF romance. She started out her thread with this. There's a weird thing they never tell you about writing MF romance, and it's this. You will become an expert in so many different ways that our culture hates women. Seriously, just go read that thread. Brie is fucking amazing and smart, and she knows what she's talking about. And she can write, her and uh, Donna can together can write some really amazing books. You should check them out if you're not already. And then later in the week, that conversation was brought up again, but framed around how some MM readers want warnings if a book has women in it, especially if they are the main characters, like an MF or an FF, within a previously MM series type of thing. That was kind of what it was framed around, which, again, I've talked about before, so I'm not going to add to it right now. So you know that's bullshit. In my opinion, that's just flat-out bullshit. But this led to a wonderful thread from a few authors, including Roan Parrish, who started out with this. This is pure misogyny. Desiring to obliterate women from the fantasy worlds you value is misogyny. Believing a story would be better without women is misogyny. Feeling like you are being cheated out of something because women are present is misogyny. I mean, a fucking men, Roan. A fucking men. I keep screaming it and screaming it, and um, I know I'm not the only one, but <laughs> I know it feels like this is something that I bring up every single time, and I joked on Twitter that maybe I should just change this podcast into what you're reading and is it misogynistic? Let's unpack, because that seems to be what I do quite often, and I'm no expert in this. Like, I mess up, you guys. I, I'm not the most perfect person at trying to unpack some of this shit or explain it well. Like, I get that, but I'm trying my best to bring up the conversation of, hey, here's how this is problematic and here's how we need to stop doing this, both in the genre and in society. If you don't talk about it, nothing's ever going to change. I mean, I can't say that enough either, no matter what we're talking about. If you don't talk about it, nothing's ever going to change. So maybe I get annoying by the fact that I keep repeating some of the same issues or, or bringing up the same issues time and time again. But I mean, I wouldn't have to bring them up if they weren't all the time in the books, you know, if it wasn't conversation going on all the time in the community. I just talk about what I see, okay? Then we had a few conversations going on about diversity and race and racism in the genre, in the community. Sasha Devlin, who is amazing and fights for so much for the genre as a whole, and especially for authors of color, she's also the queen of lippies. No, seriously, if you ever want lipstick recommendations, go to her. Plus, she's freaking gorgeous, and she can, like, pull off all the colors, and I'm jealous. But it's okay. It's okay. Um, anyway, she started by calling out authors who only write white characters or have just that one token marginalized character in the background, never as a main character, and how that's not okay. So this conversation also applied to the token queer person or fat person or disabled person, you know, beyond just race, but it was uh, originally brought up and centered around race, but it's not limited to it. To quote her, Gather around, author people. Yes, even you, Irina Inclusive. What if I told you that your book containing one marginalization is just as problematic as those that contain none? She goes on to say so much good stuff in that thread, and you just need to go and listen and follow her and enjoy her lippy pictures. I don't think she's posted many lately, but usually she will show you, like, what she's wearing and... Anyway... My point is, you get more than just, you know, oh, hey, let's talk about all the issues in romance. She does that, but, I mean, she's just an awesome person overall, and uh, you should go check her out. And then there were a lot of conversations going on about an upcoming cover by a woman of color. It's a historical romance, and the cover model for the heroine was white in, like, the original photo or the original uh, stock photography for it, but was then photoshopped and kind of badly at that, to have a darker skin tone. So at first this made so many angry, rightfully so, but then authors who have experienced the difficulty of navigating covers and stock photography and all that spoke out to remind us that this is not the author's fault. 
Alicia Rye stepped up with a wonderful thread, which actually spun off another thread from Brie, which I will also link to, to quote Alicia, the blanket proclamations against touching a stock model skin color, especially from authors who have never faced this problem, make me itchy. We have a stock photo desert for characters of color. Custom shoots aren't always possible, so what's left? Not telling stories while we wait for photographers to catch up to the demand? Going back to slapping wicker chairs on everything? So clearly there's a big gap still in the industry, right, that needs to be fixed. But until it is, like she's saying, what, what do you do? Do you go for covers that don't represent your story or your characters at all and get backlash for that? Or do you manipulate what little there is available from stock photography sites to try and make the best of it? I mean, authors and publishers to an extent are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place there. And yes, it needs to change, but I guess the point of this conversation that was going on was to remind us that it's not so easy as just to say, well, you need to change the cover. It's kind of hard to do that when there's not the... Um, you know, the stock photography, there's not the cover options that you need. They're not out there. It's not that quick to just turn that around, to turn an entire industry around, that is. So this reminds me of a conversation I had earlier this year, I believe it was, about romance covers not showing fat characters, even when the character in the book is fat. At that time, I had a few authors who stepped in to say, you know, hey, I know you're upset that the covers don't match the story, and I get it. But you have to realize that we don't have a lot of options for the covers here. So again, ties back into this idea of also not having a lot of options for uh, especially historical covers that have, you know, women or men of color on it in the stock photography. So what the genre needs, clearly, is a photographer who will just take all the pictures of all the cover models and couples of all different sizes and races and abilities and all of that is where it lays different gender pairings and time periods and we just, I think we've got a few photographers that are quite good like that. Um, Jen LeBlanc, who has done a few books, she is an author as well as a photographer, she has done some amazing things and she does have a lot of options within her stock photography. Um, but, you know, again, it's not like any one photographer can do everything, right? And I mean, she will do special photo shoots for someone who asks for it, but I mean, again, it comes down to money. So does an author or a publisher have the money to order a special shoot to get a specific thing if it's not already there as a stock photo somewhere, right? But I mean, I guess I'm just saying we need more photographers. I mean, nothing against what Jen LeBlanc is doing. She's amazing. Um, I will leave some links to her stuff as well, but, you know, one photographer can't do it all. And there might be others that are, of course. I don't mean to act like that's the only one. That's just one that I follow and happen to know does a lot of very diverse and inclusive um, cover shoots just for their stock photography alone. So why is this important? You know, you may be asking, what's in a cover? Well, everything is in a cover because as great as it is to be able to read a book about a character that you literally relate to, you know, whether that is because of their race or their sexual identity or whatever, um, that's not nearly as powerful on its own as being able to actually see yourself on the cover as well. So we need to fix that. We need to do better as an industry because we can't just be continuing to whitewash our covers um, because that's what's there, or it also ties into that's what sells, which is a different conversation that we could have about how some people would see a diverse cover and think that book is not for me, but if it's a white person on the cover, even if it's a diverse story inside, then they'll pay for it. Like I said, that's related to this, but it's a different story, so we won't get into that. Okay, one last thing. I love how you guys are all my people. So whenever I find a random review that says something like, this book had too much sex, ew, and I share that book on Twitter, everyone's one-click finger breaks. So this happened again this week, and the book in question, Not Another New Year's by Christy Ridgway, is also free, or it should still be free by the time you guys are listening. So go grab your sex-filled book, My Fellow Pervs. Book one is 99 cents, if I remember correct. So I'm sure, right, if one book has a lot of sex, then I'm sure the other one does as well. So maybe you want to grab them both. I mean, we could also talk about how that review that I'm talking about for the too much sex, ew, uh, also said, don't read if you're trying to score a higher IQ, but really, I'm just, I'm too tired to argue against that level of stupid. 
But Tamsin Parker stepped up with another killer response to it, uh, which said, in part, books that have lots of sex can also be intellectually challenging or stimulating, etc., and these things are not mutually exclusive. Yes. What she said, times a thousand, yes. A quick reminder to any romance authors that are listening, if you have a January 2018 release, let me know. I put together new release lists to post every single Tuesday, both on the blog and on social media, and I would love to include yours. I schedule these a week out, so please let me know ahead of time, not, you know, the day before your book comes out, because chances are I may not be able to actually go and update the post that quick, but if you let me know even a week in advance, I'll get you in. Moving on to the blog recap for the week. First, Jen reviewed The Pretender by Helen K. Diamond, giving it four and a half stars and making it a royal pick for December. The Pretender strikes a good balance between suspense and a romance between two damaged people who learn to trust each other. The Pretender releases on Tuesday the 26th. Next, Anita Sunday stopped by to promote her newest MM romance, Gemini Keeps Capricorn. She's got a fun guest post to share with us, her wish list of romance stories that she wants to read, including an epic enemies-to-lover dynamic playing out in an academia setting. Come share your romance wish list, as well as enjoy a teaser from Gemini Keeps Capricorn and enter a giveaway for the book. And finally, Pat reviewed Cowboy Up by Harper Sloan, which just came out this week. She gave it a solid five stars, making it a royal pick for December as well, and says it's a sexy romance with a splash of suspense while also showing the importance of family and friends. Pat also hopes that Sloan plans to write more in this series because she's just not ready to let it go. There were also the usual posts up this week, Lusting for Covers on Sunday, new releases on Tuesday, and daily book deals Monday through Saturday with a recap of the deals on Sunday. I apologize in advance to your one-click finger, while also encouraging you to go treat yourself to a new book. Or ten. I won't tell. Next week, Jen has a double review for you guys on Christmas Day as she tells you why you need to pick up newbie author Talia Hibbert. And I completely agree if you remember a podcast a couple weeks ago when I was talking about the book. There's also one hell of a rant review, or perhaps ranty PSA, from Jen for a book that sounds super, super harmful and shitty. I'm just going to leave you with this hint about the story. A dog pen in the yard, and it's not for a dog. Just let that sink in. Yeah, trust me, you want to come back and read that post next Wednesday. There's also the December Royal Picks giveaway going up on Thursday. Remember, that runs through Sunday the 31st. And Pat will finish off the week with a review for a five-star romantic suspense that comes out in January. And if you're thinking, wait, but what about a Best of 2017 list? Don't worry, we've got one coming the first week of January. Between you and me, I haven't even started my list while Jen is done with hers and Pat is almost ready to turn his in. I am a bad blogger and a huge procrastinator and I regret nothing. But uh, I better get to work on my list this week because, yeah, time is running out. As to my reading week, I managed to finish three books. Well, Technically, it's five books, since the rage-inducing series was a three-part serial. Don't worry, we'll get to that in a minute. And I'm almost done with another book, but I'll hold off on talking about it until next week. I just don't have the time. So without further ado, let's get into the book discussions. So I'm starting my week off with a complete and total rant. I apologize in advance for any and all rambling, because I have a lot on my mind about this book, and not nearly enough time to go through it all, or organize it all, or this is going to probably be a hot mess of a ramble, but the book was a hot mess of a book that left me raging, so it seems fitting anyway. I'm talking about the Hitched series by Kendall Ryan. All three parts are dual first POV, and all three parts are getting a big old one-star fail from me. So Volume 1 is narrated by Ava Erickson and Teddy Hamilton. Like I mentioned briefly last week, I was on the fence about Book 1 and thought maybe this would be one of those, 
meh, not really for me, but not rage-inducing series. Naive me at the time. But oh no, it all snowballed, and before I was even halfway through book two, full-blown TBQ rage had been triggered, and it's still burning strong. Even after I finished it, it's still burning strong. I have a lot of rage going on over this series. A lot. Noah and Olivia have known each other all their life, pretty much. Their fathers are best friends and business partners. Suddenly, they come to find out that their fathers arranged a marriage between them, making it a requirement in the will and like contract um, before they can inherit the company. Now, it's not just for them to inherit the company, but if they don't inherit the company, then the company stays in the what, like the board members, stays under their power, and the board is already talking about selling the company because it's been having some issues lately. It's not making the money it used to. So it's not just that they have to marry to get their inheritance of the, of the company, but if they want to actually save this company, then they've got to get married to inherit to then take control of the company. You know, as you do. So this is one of the most probably timeless tropes in Romance Landia, or I mean in contemporary Romance Landia. Will and business contract requirements that don't exist or mean jack shit in real life, but they reign supreme here in Romance Landia as a quick way to get from strangers to bangers to happily ever after-ers. Okay, that was a stretch to make that entire sentence rhyme, but give me a break, okay? I know this trope is catnip for so many readers, and I myself don't mind it, obviously depending on the author, depending on how it's written, but this, this series is the exact opposite of a good example of the trope. Brace yourself, I've got a lot of shit to say. This may take a while. Get yourself a drink, whether that's booze or hot coffee or whatever, and enjoy the ramble. First of all, Noah is a bit of a dick. Scratch that. He is a dick, full stop. Just as an example here, this is in book one towards the beginning of it. He whips out his nine-inch cock while at a bar with Olivia just to prove to her that he's hung and he knows how to use it. Like, this is while they're in the hallway going towards the bathroom or whatever. Supposedly nobody's around. It was a busy bar. Like, I find that hard to believe. But even if there was nobody else around, why would you do that? And it's not like they were close. I mean, you wouldn't do that even if that was, like, your wife already and you were in love. But, like, it's not like they were even close. So it's kind of like him going up to a strange woman and be like, here, here, you want to see my cock? Like, it was just, no. Just, no. Plus, just a PSA here, guys. If you truly know how to use it, you wouldn't be whipping out your monster cock to prove anything. Consensual actions speak louder than words or dick length. Just saying. Also, I know he's got a huge dick, but at one point Olivia says it looks like he was smuggling a pineapple down his pants, and I'm still trying to figure out how the fuck a dick, nine inches or not, looks like a pineapple. Someone explain this to me, because I'm starting to think his nine-incher is not like other cocks if it somehow looks like a fucking pineapple. Did I miss something in, like, Anatomy 101? I'm pretty sure every cock I've ever seen looks nothing like a pineapple that I've ever seen. I don't understand how those two are combining to be a pineapple in his pants. So enough about his dick, and back to him just being a dick. He tells her she can't use any battery-operated boyfriends because, oh no, no dick objects near your pussy except for my monster dick. First off, fuck you and the dick you swung in on. It's her body, you fucker, and if she wants to get off ten times a day, that's her right, not yours. Second, that's some fucked-up double-standard bullshit right there. Third, I point you back to the, oh no, no dick objects near what's mine because, hello, fuck that. Fuck that, fuck that. Surprise, surprise, not. He says no way in hell is he going to also keep his hands off his own dick, which he doesn't. He jacks off during the course of the book. One time she is from her point of view and she's listening to him through the door. Another time it's from his point of view and it's actually on page. Yet she never rubs one out herself. Like, fuck that. That pissed me off. You know what would have been awesome, author? To have your heroine say fuck you to the heroes controlling patriarchy bullshit and go fuck herself to orgasm paradise a few dozen times while he's getting boners and taking cold showers and jacking off or whatever he wants to do. But instead you have her actually listening to his demands and she doesn't touch herself once? Fuck that shit. No. And then there's this line when he explains why he's calling her snowflake all the time. 
You're unique and like no one else, and with one touch from me, you'll be wet. Cue the groans and the eye rolls and just... Ugh, dude, really? Really? Also, pull out your Romance Landia bingo card because we've got the not-like-other-women bullshit right there. Unique. Like no one else. God. Fuck that. I was saying that in book one, I was on the fence because as much as he was a dick, there were brief moments when I thought maybe he could have some somewhat redeeming qualities to him. So, like, he's worried about the company because of all the workers, not just because of his own name and income attached to it or whatever. Which is nice, and I had hope, but then, at the same time, he also mentions his favorite person in the company, who is a woman who came to the U.S. from Mexico, and now she single-handedly runs the giant corporation's mailroom all by herself. This this company has like 6,000 workers, and she's running their mailroom all by herself? Yeah, sure, let's just glorify the stereotypical works-themselves-to-death work ethic that white people think of. Uh, in terms of immigrants, especially immigrants of color, like Latinos. I mean, just fuck that. No. Also, he claims to be such good friends with her and care about her, and yet in the six years that he's known her, he's only bothered to learn four words in Spanish, and it's basically hey and mamacita. Do better, authors. Do better. Part one ends with them ready to get married until she suddenly leaves him at the altar We'll find out the reason for that in the next part, of course, because cliffhanger, but it's just to add a drama plot to the story and drag it out. And of course, the drama involves her ex because this is Romance Landy and apparently you cannot have any good exes in your life. They've all got to be shit. So Hitched Volume 2 is narrated by Alexander Sendis. First of all, what the actual fuck? They changed narrators between book one and book two. So now, instead of a male and female narrator, both Noah and Olivia's point of views are from one male narrator. And it's not even the original male narrator whose narration I actually enjoyed in book one. No, this guy's voice makes the hero sound like even more of a dick. I know, I know. Is that even possible, you ask? Apparently so. Also, the guy talks too fast and throws off the pacing of the story going on, and his voice for Olivia is just horrible. And it's confusing as hell trying to figure out when we're in his head and when we're in her head because my mind does not compute a man's voice doing a woman's first-person point-of-view story. It just sounds like the entire thing is from the hero, even though it's not. It alternates from chapter to chapter. Why they decided to cut it down and have just a guy doing it, I have no fucking clue. But it was a mistake. PSA to authors and publishers and whatnot, don't change your narrators in the middle of a series. Especially a serial like this where it's the same couple. It's not like you changed couples. It's the same one and you change the narrators, especially to reduce it down to one if you're doing it in dual first POV. This was just a bad decision on their part. And I mean, narration is honestly like the least of my problems with this series, but it's still a problem that I had with this series because like I said, I think the reason I liked book one at first, a little bit, was because the two narrators there, they added something to it that made me still find some enjoyment while I was listening. That went bye bye for books two and three, because they do keep Alexander to do the narration for part three as well. So the reason that she ran away uh, from their wedding day is because she got blackmail from the ex who wants to buy their company, or rather his father wants to buy their company, and he has some, like, nudes from their time together that he told her he deleted and he never did. And he's going to send them out to everyone and ruin her. And so uh, she better not marry him and she better give over the control of the company to the ex. And that's the whole reason. And like I said, it's just unnecessary drama to try and drag this stupid story out. The way that they get him to not do this is they try to blackmail him by saying... She claims that she has pictures of him and his small dick because, of course, why not throw the shitty ex into the shitty ex with a tiny dick because uh, this book had problems, you guys. Toxic masculinity rears its ugly head in here so, so bad, and it's disgusting. Um, but anyway, she claims to have pictures of him. She doesn't. But they use that as leverage to blackmail him back and tell him, no, you better just shut your mouth and leave us alone. 
And because you've got Noah there swinging his big giant cock around while he's saying all this, I mean, not literally swinging it around, but you know what I mean, it's a guy. Um, so the, the ex backs off and just disappears, and this is like maybe a few chapters in. And now we've got to drag out the whole rest of this story and then the next book. So like I says, this is just dragging out stuff that didn't need to be dragged out because it didn't accomplish anything didn't accomplish a thing. So they do finally get married. But when she was going through all that, somehow she didn't care to read the contract again very closely and just signed it. And she doesn't know that there's also a clause that not only do they need to marry, they have to also produce a child or proof of a pregnancy within 90 days of the marriage or they also forfeit the company. Well, she somehow didn't read that part in the contract before signing it and knows nothing about it, even though they've had countless meetings with her father and everything else about the contract and what was expected. And yet somehow it never got brought up and she doesn't know a thing about it. He does. And he starts figuring out he's got to plan a way to get her pregnant, except for she doesn't know about it. So now he's got to figure out a way to do it on the down low because heaven forbid that he actually talks to her and says, hey, did you read section so and so here on the contract? I got to get you knocked up. No, no, no. He can't do that because, again, that would end the story that had nothing else going on. So let's just drag this motherfucker on for no reason at all. So Noah's still going, I'll talk to her about it tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow for sure, I swear I'll talk to her tomorrow about it. Like, no. Talk now, you piece of shit. It's her damn body that will need to grow a fucking parasite for nine months. You talk before you start fucking her. But no, he doesn't do that. No, he keeps acting like it is out of the question to fuck her with a condom until he can actually talk to her about the whole thing. And he wonders if he can discreetly fuck her raw without her noticing. And I just, I cannot. I cannot. I still don't understand why he thought that he had to play some game to begin with. She doesn't know about the claws. You've still got some time. You know what? You want to fuck her? You fuck her with a condom. You talk about it later. If you're not going to actually open your mouth and talk to her about it, then it means you have to keep wearing the condom, doesn't it? But he acts like wearing the condom is just out of the question. And I just, ugh, you guys. Yes, she notices and says, you know, nope, no condom, no fucking me. And still, he doesn't bring up the damn pregnancy clause. He just grumples and grabs a condom to finally fuck her. And then there's another time when they don't have a condom and he's trying to play the whole, oh, I'll just stick it in and it'll be okay, wink, wink. And she's again telling him, no, I, I guess I ought to give her points for at least that, right? But he does give this whole asshole move after that of, well, this boner needs to be taken care of. <laughs> so what do you want to use, your mouth or your ass? This scene, by the way, is while they're in his office, during the workday, the door is unlocked, there's no lube around for the anal that he's asking her for, which would have been her first time with anal, just FYI, and he thinks she needs to pick an alternative hole to use to get him off. Fuck you, dickbag. Fuck you. Go use your hand. Go think about baseball stats or your grandmother or whatever the fuck guys do to debone the boner. But Jesus Christ, believing that he needs to be alternatively serviced since she won't let him fuck her without a condom? Fuck that. Spoiler. She drops down and blows him, and I couldn't stop from rolling my eyes while still repeating fuck that, fuck that, fuck that in my head, which was basically what was going through my head through the entire time I was listening to this. I'm pretty sure anyone who saw me out walking wondered what the hell was going on because I think I said it out loud a time or two and I probably also had a look on my face that said don't come near me because the rage you guys the rage was strong with this one so right before we get the next cliffhanger he goes so far as to seriously consider taking a needle to the condom and then fucking her with the ruined condom Still hasn't talked to her about it. We've went this entire book and he's had no conversation with her about it. Her father hasn't brought up that, hey, when are you going to give us the kid that you are required to? Like, I don't understand how she has not found out this part of the contract at any point in all this time. She was not a stupid heroine at the beginning. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Uh, and suddenly she just, she's walking around and knows nothing and he won't talk to her about it. And the dad doesn't want to say a thing. And <sighs> you guys, this entire fucking thing could have been resolved by them talking shit out. But no, he refuses because he thinks she'll hate him and leave him if he tells her what's in the contract. I have no fucking clue why he thinks this since he didn't create the goddamn contract, their families did, so why would she be mad at him for following what is in the contract or telling her about what is in the contract that she signed as well? I don't know why he thinks she'd be mad at him and leave him because of it. He didn't create the damn contract. <sighs> And don't even get me started on her father not talking to her about the contract either, because fuck him as well. 
No. Also, can we take a little detour for a minute? I mean, it relates to this book, but it's a larger romance landing issue too. Olivia mentions over and over and over again that she hasn't had sex in years and oh no, better go slow when he finally fucks her because it's been so long and did I forget to mention it's been so long? Girl, calm down. I don't care if you've had a 20-year dry spell. Your virginity did not magically reappear and it's not going to be any harder, <laughs> that's what she said, for him to fuck you than it would be any other time. The key to any sex, no matter how long it's been or whatever, is foreplay, communication along the way, and lubrication. There is nothing wrong with bringing in a bottle of lube, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter what hole is being used, lube is everyone's friend. The exception here being lube and blowjobs do not mix, okay, not even the so-called flavored lube. Look, no one wants fake-ass cherry-flavored dick and balls, okay? But any other sex act benefits from lube. My point here is when he does finally fuck her, she thinks afterwards that it's like she was a do-over first time for her and she felt like it was a virgin again. And I was just like, dear God, no. <sighs> fuck that idea of born-again virginity. Also related to this, she compares Noah to her previous lovers and says that Noah was her best ever and she never had even decent sex before and now she knows what everyone's been talking about. Again, fuck this idea that Romance Landia has that past lovers, so both the heroines and heroes, have to be like the worst lovers ever in existence. You know what? Give me characters who had amazing, fulfilling sex lives before they found their significant other. Because guess what? It's possible. Hell, you can still have your hero and or your heroine say that that was amazing, earth-shattering sex. Why do they have to then compare it to every previous partner and make all the other partners sound like they were bumbling idiots that just laid there and did nothing like stop stop the comparison just stop you don't need to compare in order to say that that was great sex you can just tell us that it was great sex you don't have to compare it and throw everyone else under the bus that's not sex positive when you're subtly trying to slut shame the heroine for any previous partners they had by saying that those were not good sex partners so now is when her actual sexuality starts and gets awakened by the hero like fuck that no 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 Speaking of the virginity part, uh, this doesn't come into play until the end of the third book, but I'll briefly mention it now. They were talking about, you know, why didn't you sleep with me that drunken night in college? And he tells her, well, you were a virgin then, and I wasn't ready for someone like you, and that was your most precious gift, and I couldn't take that from you. Um, hello, we've got a woman author in 2017 or 2016, whenever this damn book came out. It was just recently, though, like a couple years, tops who is writing about the virginity being a sacred gift. Fuck that, fuck that, fuck that. No. This story also employs the heroine changes her entire fucking character after being dicked out by the hero's magical cock, which I hate. So after sleeping with him, she's no longer an uptight, responsible, and practical person that she's always been. No, no, instead she's giggling like a girl, she's embracing her girly side, and suddenly in love with pink and shit, and my problem isn't with a woman. Hell, my problem isn't with anyone, for that matter, that likes to be girly or loves pink or any of that. I have no problem with that. That's not where my problem is with this. My problem here is that the hero's dick being the cause for her change. Fuck that, fuck that, fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. This entire episode is apparently brought to you by the words, fuck that shit. So, Hitched, Volume 3. Remember, when Book 2 ended, she found him with the needle and the condom, he can't believe she's so upset about that, and he starts in with the, I wouldn't have actually done it, I fucked up, I'm sorry, okay, a billion times. According to him, it's a billion times, when in reality, he says it like twice. And he's upset that she refuses to believe him when he says that he won't do it again. Gee, I wonder why she doesn't trust you, dickhead. A few pages later, aka like a few weeks later, we'll talk about that as well at the end, uh, she finally accepts his apology, says she'll never hold any of that against him ever again, and they ride off into the sunset together. To top it off, his idea for how to make sure she trusts him to be faithful to her and love her for the rest of their lives, he goes and gets her full name tattooed right across his groin, directly above his nine-inch cock. Listen, we can't forget about his monster nine-inch cock, okay? I'm sorry, but since when did that become A, romantic to do, and B, an instant iron chastity belt for the guy? 
Also, why? Also, he takes the bandages off as soon as he gets back from the tattoo parlor, and they fuck. Pretty sure that's not on the aftercare instructions, idiot, but whatever, I hope your monster cock, okay, more like your groin, hurts during that screwing because, ugh, why? 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 I should probably also tell you about how the heroine and the hero both see other women in the workplace as bimbos that cannot be trusted to not fall onto his dick while doing their job. But don't worry, according to the hero here, I knew her anti-bimbo hiring practices had nothing to do with not trusting me and everything to do with her own code of ethics. Oh, really? Well then, fuck you both and fuck the author who wrote you. The internalized misogyny that I keep repeating and repeating and repeating and I know it's getting tiring, there it is in action. Right there. Reinforcing the idea that the heroine is better than all the other women. Reinforcing society's bullshit of making women hate and not trust one another, along with a dollop of slut-shaming because the heroine is not like other women. She worked hard to get her place in the office, while all other women apparently sleep their way to a promotion. Fuck that shit, fuck that shit, fuck that shit. Wow, that was very odd for me to start singing that. You guys, I am in a mood with this. Look, if she can't trust him to stay away from the women in the office, then maybe she shouldn't be trusting him in her life, period. And if she can't trust every woman ever to keep away from his dick, then maybe she needs to unpack her own shit. Because internalized misogyny. And that is literally just the beginning, you guys. I've been rambling. I don't even know how long. It is a hot mess. This is going to be a pain to edit into something somewhat coherent for you guys. And it's still going to be a rambling mess. But I could go on and on about this series. I've barely scratched the surface of my issues. Just barely scratched it. But even outside of him being an ass and pulling all that shit and all the misogynistic bullshit that's going on in this book left, right, and center, the story was still a fail. It's weak. The romance is MIA until they suddenly get a case of insta-love in the last, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 pages of volume three with no progression before the sudden I love you, don't leave me, and no progression after that because I still didn't believe the love. Between these three books, that's over 600 pages, and nothing fucking happens. It just drags on and on and on and on, and there's nothing going on. Nothing. Like, they just kind of pick up and drop stuff and pick up and drop stuff, and nothing goes from beginning to end. Nothing is resolved. Nothing is fully flushed out. Nothing is developed. Nothing. It's just, no. Things like saving the company, that gets pushed to the side for most of it. Her father's health, that gets pushed aside as well until suddenly it's a, you know, brought in for a plot device. Oh, speaking of his health, another dick move that the hero did. Uh, when she ran off, I think this was after the whole, you try putting a needle in the condom thing and she ran off away from him and wouldn't answer her phone or whatever. And he doesn't know where she is, so he decides to text her and tell her that her father's health just took a turn for the worst and where is she, he'll come get her. He manipulates and lies to her about something like her father's damn health just so that he can go find out where she is and try to apologize. And he doesn't even do a good job of apologizing anyway. And that just pissed me off. You do not try doing something like that. Because her father, I don't think I ever mentioned, her father's got like cancer and he's only got months to live. And um, I mean, his health was rocky at the time, but when he called to say that, the dad was fine and sitting at home. And he just does that to manipulate her, to get her to tell him where she is so he can come and apologize? No. 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 You tried pulling that shit on me and your balls are going to be up into your throat, dude. No. And of course she forgives him for that. She forgives him for everything he ever does in this book. He doesn't grovel for shit, but she forgives him for everything. Before I got sidetracked by that, I was talking about, you know, things get pushed to the wayside, things are just forgotten about. Um... Apparently she has a sister, but we don't find out about that until, like, the epilogue. I want to know where the hell she was through the entire rest of the book. Where was she through the dad's health problems? Or where was she through Olivia getting married? Or where was she anywhere? She didn't exist until, like, the epilogue, and then it's like, oh, yeah, she had a sister. Well, that's news to me! Yes, you might have spent some more time with those 600 pages actually creating a story that made sense instead of this rambling bullshit. It's probably about as rambling as I am, but... I'm not getting paid to put a book on the table for you. This was a book that's out there being sold, and it's a rambling piece of garbage. So the pacing is way off, and we suddenly jump, like, days and weeks, and 
it makes it hard to figure out just how much time passed from one scene to another. The characters are super inconsistent, most especially Olivia. She started out pretty strong in book one, and I had hopes that she could hold her own against the dickwad hero, but through book two and three, she turns into a doormat who changes who she is completely, and that always makes me sad and ragey when authors do that to a heroine. There's just nothing about this series that's good. Nothing. It was a waste of my time and my rage, but at least it wasn't a waste of my money because this was through the library, and thank God for that. I won't be reading Ryan again. Considering all the shit in these three books, I'm pretty damn sure she always writes and thinks and believes these things. So, nope. This was my first and last Kendall Ryan book, and like I said, the only bright side is I didn't waste my money on it. Just stay away from this one. Whether or not you want to stay away from any of her other books, I mean, that's up to you. You want to go read her? I'm not going to stop you. I won't be doing it, but I'm not going to stop you. But I would say don't read this one because you will just rage. You will just be full of rage. Don't read it. Okay, time to move on before I start going at it again and make this even longer than it needs to be. Hey, kind of like his cock. I'm just saying nine inches is... It's a little bit much. A little bit much. I like my cervix right where it is, thanks. Next up is A Hope Divided by Alyssa Cole. This one is a solid three and a half stars for me. Marley is a free black woman. Her mother was a traditional healer, I suppose, and her biological father was a white master. Marley's been lucky enough to be taken in by her half-sister and treated really quite well by her, but she's not treated as a white member of the family, of course. She is aware of her privilege she has compared to most blacks there in the South. She doesn't um, take that for granted. Marley herself is a healer, taking some knowledge from the traditional medicine and such of her mother, but also using modern medicine that she picked up by reading some of the you know medical textbooks and stuff like that. She also works for the Loyal League, which is basically helping to overthrow the South from the inside. Ewan is a Scottish-American, and he's a counterintelligent agent for the Union Army. The two meet when he's in a Confederate prison, one that she often takes medicine and food and books and whatnot to. The first part of the book, where they keep trading books and notes back and forth, that was probably one of my favorite parts, period. Anyway, when he escapes from the prison, he ends up at her doorstep, needing medical care and a place to hide until he can run on his own again. She hides him away in the attic with her. Everything's going okay until one of her aunt's top Confederate buddies moves into the house and starts snooping around Marley and wonders what's up with, you know, all this space she's got up in the attic and all that, which then sends the two of them on the run. So here's the thing. Cole's writing is truly wonderful. I have no complaints about it. Her way with words, the way she drops blatant social comments all over the story, social comments that still apply today because we white people are fucking idiots who never learn. I'm just saying. Uh, all of that is great. And I have so many amazing quotes that I shared on Twitter, which, as always, I will have linked in the blog post for this podcast. I love that this story and others like it are being told, or rather that they're being picked up by big publishers. They're getting some of the uh, recognition that they deserve. It's not that these stories weren't being told before. It's that they weren't getting the limelight that they should have. And I mean, to be honest, they're still not. I, I'm not saying that suddenly everyone has a place in publishing or on the shelf. I know better, but it is moving in the right direction. It's a slow inch and that's a whole other conversation. Uh, my point is, I love that these stories are being told, that we're finally getting them in mainstream, you know, publishing houses for romance. But I'm also mad, like I said, that it's taken so long to get even where we are and that these stories are still in the minority within the genre. Also, can we take a moment? That cover is striking. Same with the cover for book one. Awesome. Awesome, awesome covers. Love it. So for the writing and the story itself, this one was a solid read for me. But the romance, the romance was a bit weak for me. 
I know, I keep saying this lately, which either means that I need to pick up some other romances or I need to work on my review vocabulary because I'm starting to sound like a broken record that knows no other phrases. Or both. It's probably both of those things, let's be honest. Anyway, this is a slow burn, which I'm okay with, but I didn't feel like I was left with enough of their romance on page to fully believe they're happily ever after. It's not about the sex, which I will talk about in a moment, don't you worry, uh, but rather their actual romance, their connection. I just felt like something was missing. I wasn't getting the full picture, and it just, you know, once again kind of left me a little bit underwhelmed. I had that same problem with the first book, too, that I felt like the romance wasn't as strong as I wanted. So here we've got a bit of, not necessarily their romance, but their... I guess their budding friendship, at least, their, you know, early communication with those notes, like, that was nice. I wish we had gotten more of that, to be honest, but, you know, he was only there in the prison for so long, so what can you expect? Although they did do a few notes when he was up hiding in the attic. That was also kind of fun. Um, regardless, my point is, that was, that was nice. That kind of gave us a little bit of groundwork about them first getting to know one another, but then we don't get a whole lot of anything going on for... A vast majority of the book and suddenly they're on the run together and he's proclaiming his love and how much he wants to have a future with her a future that she doesn't think would be possible by the way but I never really saw that move from the friendly notes to the happily ever after we just kind of jumped and I need more than a jump between those two things in my romance as to the sex because you know, you know, I'm going to talk about it. Uh, there's not much, and it doesn't come heh, 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 uh, until the last quarter of the book or so. But it had a few things that I absolutely loved. You ready? First, the heroine mentions that she had touched her body while thinking of him. It's not on page masturbation. It's just her thinking this, um, you know, in her mind. Uh, in inner dialogue, I mean, in her mind. Um, but it's it's a start, right? And it's still a good start, and I appreciated it. Second, they have a really, really hot dry hump session. Do we still call it dry humping if their clothes are all off, but there's no penetration while they thrust to orgasm? I don't know. Whatever you want to call it, uh, that was hot, and it's up against, like, a wall, or was it a desk or something? My mind is kind of blanking because all I knew is that was kind of a hot scene and nothing else mattered. And third... Ewan asks her to show him what she needs to orgasm, and she just grabs his hand, and damn, but she did indeed show him. You know that's my weakness. Oh, that's my weakness. So while the sex was just barely hitting average on the heat scale, it still made me happy because it was sex positive, and it showed the heroine's sexual agency and her self-pleasure, and you know I'm always here for all of that. So yes, that part gets a thumbs up from me. Ewan, by the way, is not exactly a virgin. He says that he had been with some other women, but the way that he was alluding to it, I'm guessing he didn't have intercourse with any of them. Maybe it was just oral or fingering or I don't know what he was up to, but the way he was talking to her about his past experience, it sounded like he hadn't had intercourse, but I don't know. I mean, since we put so much focus on virginity being intercourse, that's why I'm like, I don't really want to say that he was a virgin or not a virgin, because then that makes it sound like, oh, he could do any other sex act with these women, but if his penis didn't enter a vagina, then he's still a virgin. Like, you know what I'm saying? So I'm hesitant to give him the label of virgin, because that ties so much into the thought that his dick had to enter a vagina for him to lose his virginity. I mean, that's also a whole other conversation about how do we decide what a virgin is, and it's a total society BS concept and uh, we don't have time to go into all that so I'm just saying he didn't have a whole lot of experience she is a virgin herself um, their first time is kind of you know quick and awkward and stuff like that but like I said it was hot I really have no complaints except for maybe that I wanted more but you know by now I always always want more from the sexy times so overall I enjoyed this one and Cole's writing is solid like I said but because of the price tag for this series and $9.99 for an ebook, I have a hard time saying go out and buy this. 
hell, I'd have a hard time saying that even if this was a five-star out-of-this-world read for me because that's a lot of money for me to tell you to spend. But it's up to you, and you know your own book budget and what you're comfortable paying and, you know, how you want to support authors and stuff. That's entirely up to you. It's not that I don't think that authors deserve to be supported by buying their books, but for a lot of us, those prices are just outside of what we can spend. It's not that we don't want to support them. It's just we can't spend that. So if buying is out of the question, which I get, I so, so, so get it, you guys. I really do then I would say look for it at your library like I did. It's definitely worth the read. I just wish it wasn't so damn expensive. It looks like book three is going to involve Daniel, who came in and saved the day towards the end of this one. And I'm curious to know what his story is, because it sounds like there's betrayal and heartbreak, or maybe both in his past, and he's all cynical about it now. And we all know it can be super delicious to watch a hero like that finally fall in love again. So bring it on. Is it October 2018 yet? And finally, I finished up another audiobook, His at Night by Sherry Thomas, narrated by Kate Redding. This one ended up being only two and a half stars for me. Alessand dreams of getting out of her uncle's house, out from under his evil, abusive thumb, but she can't just leave. You know, he wouldn't let her to begin with, and she has no resources to do so anyway. More importantly, though, she would need to take her ill aunt with her as well, who has obviously been stuck under his abusive rule, and um, probably even more so than Elisande. While her uncle is away one week, she must suddenly play host to a neighbor and her guest, as there's an incident involving rats at their estate. Suddenly, Elisande has an idea for her escape, get caught with one of the bachelors staying at her house, and leave the manor with her aunt and her new husband. The only problem is, she doesn't get caught with the man she has her sights on, but rather with his brother. Veer, that's his title by the way, but that's the name he goes by most often in the book. His first name is actually Spencer. Veer is a complete idiot, or at least that's what he makes everyone think, from his family and friends to all of society. In reality, he's extremely intelligent. In fact, he's a secret agent for the government, and he sticks to his I'm-so-dumb-and-harmless act so that no one ever suspects him of being in that odd place at that odd time or talking to that particular person. His act works, and no one suspects anything, even after all these years that he's been doing it. Veer is at Alessandre's estate to catch her uncle, who supposedly stole some diamonds, and, as it later turns out, stole a man's identity years ago. When Veer notices Alessandre watching his younger brother with wedding intention in her eyes, he steps in to stop anything from happening. But instead, he gets compromised with her one night, resulting in their quickie marriage the next day. Since he's still trying to get to her uncle, he's okay with this sudden change in plans. But can he keep up his act around his own wife? So I had a few issues with this book. First, I was confused by a few things, including, and this is a spoiler, sorry, but the sudden revelation about Elisande's parents. With only a few chapters left in the book, it suddenly revealed that her aunt and uncle were, in fact, her actual biological parents. So the thing that confused me was the explanation for it all. Something about the aunt told everyone, including her husband, that she lost her baby and that later she brings in her dead sister's little girl to raise. Like, I still have no idea how this deceit was pulled off or how long it was between the death of the baby girl that would be Elisande and when Elisande was actually brought to her aunt and uncle's house to be raised Things were just never explained, just, oh yeah, and she's not your aunt, she's your mother, which means your evil uncle is also your father. Now, don't ask questions, just accept this new information, and let's not speak about it ever again, the end. And she doesn't ask questions, she just accepts it, and moves on, and the reader is supposed to do so as well, I guess, since it is never brought up or explained after that. Nah, try again, I need more than that. My issue with the romance itself was I never felt like these two truly knew each other, since he's always playing a part right up until nearly the end of the book when he is long-term deception is revealed first to the heroine and then later to his own brother. 
He was never really himself, not even when he was around her. Oh, sure, when he was drunk or something, he'd let down his act a bit and, you know, lo no longer act stupid. But even then, it wasn't like he was showing her his true personality or deep thoughts or anything else. It's just you got him drunk enough and he was no longer a bumbling idiot. He was just, you know, a drunk man. That just wasn't enough to show her who he was. I find it hard to believe that they not only knew each other well, but fell for each other when there was always that lie between them. If anything, she fell for his acting, not for him. And I never really saw his reasons why he was falling for her either. So the once again lackluster and rushed without being developed first romance is a large part of the reason for um, my giving the low rating. The other part relates to the sex, which was not good, though probably not for the reason you're thinking. Their first time, which is her first time period, left a very bitter taste in my mouth while I side-eyed the hero and to some extent the author. Because their wedding night takes place while Elisande was ridiculously drunk, like miles past the I've had a glass but I'm fully able to consent phase and well into the I'm too drunk to make any decisions let alone consent stage. And that made me super uncomfortable, and most especially after everything that's going on in the world today. On top of that, he doesn't give her any sort of foreplay, just kisses her for a moment or two, touches her breast once or twice, because men, duh, and then shoves his way in. It hurts her. No duh. A lot. No duh. And since she starts crying while telling him, you know, it's okay, go on, this is my duty as a wife, please hurry up with your end of it, he pulls out and just tells her he's done, even though he's not, um, as far as, you know, coming, he's not done, and he lets her drunk ass go to sleep. So this is not okay on so many levels. The dubious consent is made even worse by him at one point telling her that she must be certain that this is what she wants because he's too far gone to stop anymore, to which my response to that bullshit every damn time is, fuck you and get the fuck out. No means no, regardless of whether you've only kissed your partner or you are a breath away from orgasm with your partner. So that is a no for me. And yeah, I know it's far too common of a response from many heroes in Romancelandia, but I still get pissed about it every damn time. Can we just stop that type of talk from any character? I don't want to limit it to just the hero. Can we just stop that type of talk from anyone, period? Just no. No. But besides all of that shit to side-eye, there's the fact that foreplay is never part of their very few sex scenes. It's a kiss. A touch above the waist, always above the waist, and then he's thrusting away in missionary position until suddenly she's experiencing unknown pleasure and he's spilling inside her. Which, while we're here, I should mention, one night he tells her he'll pull out since they don't want children yet, but then he gets lost in the moment and fucks her to the very end, which, again, no. I know it's a historical. Condoms were not exactly common like they are today. They were around in most situations, most eras, but not that often and not common, like I said. But still, I don't want my romance heroes to ignore a heroine's reproductive decisions, lost in the moment passion or not. Back to the lack of foreplay, though. I've said it before, on Twitter at least, though possibly I might have said it here as well. Even if you don't write explicit sex in your books, you really need to, at the very least, allude to or describe some foreplay for the heroine. Because while there may be some women who can not only get aroused, but orgasm without foreplay or clitoral stimulation, it's really damn rare. And I don't want no foreplay, just basic thrusting to become the poster child for sex in romance or in real life. Oh, hell no. You don't want to talk about him finger-banging her or eating her out or circling her clit? Fine. But how about brief mention of his hand going between her legs or his mouth going there? Give me something that literally tells me that he's not just grabbing her whenever he wants, spreading her legs, and thrusting his way to orgasm while she magically has a no-touch orgasm herself. 
that's not sexy or terribly realistic, and it takes away her sexual agency as well, making the scene all about him and his pleasure. Because he's getting off on it, he's getting what he needs to get off on it, she's not getting hers. And like I says, I don't want to have magical no-touch orgasms for women be the poster child for how sex works, because it's not. And we've already got men running around thinking that's how it works, and... Um, have no idea where the hell the clitoris is, so let's not add to that by making this no-touch magical orgasm a thing. Just, no. No. So not only does the lack of foreplay come up in their other scenes, but one or both of them are pretty much always drunk when they fuck on page. I have no idea why. I found that really odd. It just, again, this made me uncomfortable and it didn't read as sexy to me. And again, it made it so that their little bit of time when they were together and he wasn't playing a part, one or both of them was drunk, so you're still not getting to know either one of them to become a good couple. It just was not a good setup for a romance. It just wasn't. Not a believable one. So the sex was a bust, and then some. The romance was pretty much missing for me, and there were parts of the actual story that were unclear and confusing. Sherry's writing voice is nice, and the narrator's performance is nice as well, but not nearly enough to bump the rating up any higher than what I'm doing. I have read Sherry Thomas before and enjoyed that book a lot more than I did this one, that's for sure, so I'm not writing her off, but this particular one was a disappointment that came damn close to high levels of rage in regards to the sex. Still not nearly hitched by Kendall Ryan level rage, just as an example here, but it was a bit too close for comfort nonetheless. So I mentioned that I'm just about done with another book, which is The Christmas Cowboy Hero by Donna Grant, but I won't be chatting about it until next week just because I've ran out of time to prepare for it and to record this, and yeah, we'll hold off on it. But remember how I said last week that I don't know how to read print anymore? No, I wasn't lying. It took me forever to read this book, and it has nothing to do with the story and everything to do with, oh my god, the font is tiny, and there's no light, and my hands hurt from holding it open, and it's only been five minutes, and help me, what is this torture? Yes, I am spoiled by my Kindle Paperwhite, and I do not care one bit. But this weekend, I'm reading Wrapped by Rebecca Weatherspoon, which just came out on Thursday. I believe it was Thursday that she posted that one. I was just going to read that Talia Hibbert holiday romance, and I think I still will, probably after I'm finished with this one, but I really wanted to start this novella. The heroine is a curvy woman and a pastry chef, and I happen to note that Rebecca does not fat or body shame in her stories, so yay, yay, yay. As to my audiobook, I decided to pick up book two in that Beck McMaster series, so I am starting Heart of Iron. I hear there's a virgin werewolf hero. Um, hi, yes, please, gimme. Let's see if some of the world building is explained more in this one than it was in the first one. What about you? Tell me, what are you reading this weekend? I hope it's good, but if it's not, you know I'm always up for a good book rant as well. I hope you enjoyed this week's What You're Reading chat. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and fall in love with some fantastic books. Until next week, enjoy TBQ.